Well, good morning. It's great to uh, be here in St. Andrews. Um, I hope I'm not like the guy from head office is coming to check on you, but I do see that you are a real free church. Two things indicate that. Uh, a real free church always sings at least one psalm, and you have surpassed that. You actually sing two, so that's good. And you also start five minutes late, so you are definitely very much in the club. So it's great to be here this morning in St. Andrews. Uh, let's open up our Bibles, uh, John chapter 18. Open up our Bibles or flip open our phone. Page 904, John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. <clears throat> You see the title there, The Betrayal and Arrest of Jesus. Now, the concept of being arrested is huge in politics just now in Scotland. Indeed, someone said that following Scottish politics was like watching episodes of Taggart. It seems that every second person is being arrested. So I'm not being unduly political, but the idea of being arrested is very much in the news of course, if you're a cricket fan and you follow Pakistan, Imran Khan was arrested last week. Whether he should have been or not, indeed, is beyond my knowledge and 
really expertise. And so the idea of people being arrested is absolutely huge. It's in the news. There is absolutely no doubt that this arrest this morning in John chapter 18 is the most significant arrest in all of history. It's significant not just because it's a miscarriage of justice, which clearly it was. It's not just significant because of the whole socio-political environment in which this story is set, and indeed that is intriguing. But this event triggered off something which has changed, and I use these words advisedly, the whole structure of the cosmos since. We are dealing in this chapter with a series of events over the next few hours which literally changed human history. There is no doubt that this is the most important, the focal point of human history. Just a couple of of things by way of introduction. Uh, Number one, let's just notice, by by way of introduction, the, the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know that up to 50% of the entire Gospels is taken up with this uh, uh, event in history. Indeed, in John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 12, he devotes almost 50% of his writings to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the early days, they wrote in parchment. And parchment was very short in supply. It was very, very expensive. You did not waste words. And so it's significant that the the, the writers of all the Gospels chose to focus on this few days to dominate their writing. And so we see here the importance. But notice also by way of introduction the, the authenticity of it here. The great thing about the Bible is that it doesn't begin once upon a time. Verse 1, there's a time, isn't it, when Jesus had spoken these words. We know that he spoke during the Passover, so there's a a kind of time label on it. It was a place in time. We have got a place, a brook called Kidron there in verse 1, and we have a garden, verse 1, where they often met. And again in verse 10, notice someone's name, Malchus, and the extraordinary and almost, you would say, unnecessary detail, he cut off his right ear. And so all all that indicates that what we're dealing with here are actual historical events. The Bible is located in space-time history. The Bible is not a theoretical fairy story. Who am I speaking to this morning? Well, I'm speaking to folk in St. Andrews. But who are you? That's not a a question of of existential identity. I I think I'm speaking to to three groups of people this morning. Number one, those of you who are not really believers, those of you who are not yet persuaded, but you're kind of interested. Interested enough to come along here this morning and listen to what we have to say. The second group are maybe those of you who have just become Christians. You're new in the faith, and all this stuff is just novel to you. And thirdly, those of you who are believers, this passage has something to say to all of us. But John's gospel was written for a very particular reason. We read there, John said that these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the purpose for all of us, that we may believe in him, but not just believe intellectually, but by believing that we may have life in his name. So that's just setting up the passage, the importance, because uh, so much detail is given, the authenticity of it because of the nature of the detail. Now, as we move through the passage, and that is one of the features of St. Andrews, if you're new here, which is an ironic statement because I'm probably the only one who's new here, the importance of this congregation is that we open up the Bible and we say, look at this, look at the sources, what do the sources say? I just want to notice three things this morning, your classic three-point sermon not three P's and a poem, but three C's, and if you're good, a poem at the end. What do we have? First C here, we have control. Don't we control? Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward. He wasn't forced. The idea here was that Jesus was in absolute control of every single motion, everything that happened here. The picture is, we are told, it's like the garden was probably in an enclosure. It was like a walled garden. And all these soldiers came, and Jesus, the Word says, kept, came forward. He stepped out of the space, and he met the people full on. And so, verse 4 says there, the organization, contrast that with verse 3, where you've got what I call a malign organization. You've got Judas, who was the, uh, the, the, the quizzling, the, the, the infiltrator, the, 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 the spy. A detachment of soldiers came, huge crowd of soldiers. Normally, the soldiers were in barracks at Caesarea, but this was a Passover, there was nationalistic fervency, there was a lot of stuff going on. Things often kicked off at Passover. And so there was more soldiers than usual in the city of Jerusalem, and all these soldiers came. And you've got this idea of an organized group of people, but yet it is not what it seems, because in complete control here is Jesus. Now, that's one of the features of John's writing. John, the writer of this gospel, is big on the idea of Jesus being in complete control. John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So Jesus was not a pathetic martyr being led by forces outside his control. Jesus was not just a kind of modern-day Che Guevara or an ancient-day Che Guevara, if you're a certain age, someone who is a political liberator. Jesus is in exact control of this situation. Now, this is important because in this chapter, in this section, we got the idea of power dynamics. And it's subtly brought out. The control's brought out in one very powerful way. Notice the question is asked maybe three times, or the response is given by Jesus three times. 
When they said to him, whom do you seek? Verse 4. We see the same idea there in verse 5. We see the same idea in verse 7. We see the same idea in verse 8. Who do you seek? Whom do you seek? And the reply was, I am he. Now, what do you notice is unusual about verse 6? When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Did that not strike you as somewhat odd? That this person just says, I am he. And it had this effect, they just, wow, fell down. They are doing sudden, serious carpet time. They are involuntary falling down. This is where we see power. This is where we see control. They fell down because they are caught by the sheer power and authority of this man. Where did that come from? Was Jesus simply an unusually charismatic personality? Was he someone who had gone to some Tony Robbins life coaching course and had a real sense of confidence and he could control the room? No, there's something bigger going on here. And the clue is these words, I am he. Now, to get the clue here, indeed, it's more than a clue. It's pretty obvious. What's happening here is Jesus is not just saying an everyday thing. Oh, it's me. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Hey, 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 man, that's me. In the original, there's just two words, and it's the exact same words that's used in the Old Testament version when Moses says to God in Exodus chapter 3, second book of the Bible, Who will I say you are? I am. So the name for God is I am. And that, not tradition, that that, that fact flows right away through the Bible. And isn't that a great name for God? I am. So the idea here is that when Jesus says, I am, they suddenly realized that in the garden, this was none other than God. Now, the high priests would have known the significance of this. The Roman soldiers wouldn't have had a clue because they were from another tradition. John brings this out again and again and again. I am. He is the primary cause. Jesus is the everlasting present. Jesus is the eternal constant God in the flesh. So, he's not just a man. Without the word again in ancient history here, Jesus Christ, superstar, he's just a man. He is not. He is God. And John is huge in this idea of I am. One could say it was an obsession with John. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the door. John chapter 10 again, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, I am the true vine. It's all over John's gospel. He's got this idea. And whenever God is used, especially in these words, I am, it's always in the context of God coming in salvation 
in power and in glory. You see the ironic contrast here. Verse 3, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. <laughs> he is the light of the world. It's like folk coming with a little bitty candle to expose the sun. It's like people who think that they've got something and they don't realize that this is God. Crocodile Dundee, again, it was a, a movie of a hundred years ago. You, you know that great line in Crocodile Dundee when uh, 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 the guy is, is walking through the streets of, of London, and is it New York? New York. You don't get thugs in London. New York, and these uh, thugs come with a knife and they hold them up. And the girlfriend says, Mick, Mick, watch, watch. They've got a knife. And then he says, that's not a knife. And he takes this big machete out. That's a knife. And they run. That's the kind of picture you have here. You've got the power of the Roman military. You've got the authority of the Jewish political system. You've got the civil magistrate. You've got all these folk together. You see it there in verse 3. The, the, the amalgam, this malign amalgam of all these people. And yet beside Jesus, they are nothing. And that's exactly the same today. His control and his power. He could have sent 10,000 angels. You see, the idea here of control. But there's, there's lots of stuff going on here in John 18. Um, it all takes place in a garden. Now, I think that's really significant. There's a, those of you who, who know your Bible, all kicks off in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. There's a real Genesis lens here. In fact, I think you see a lot of this part of, of, of John's gospel highlights this garden theme. Uh, chapter 19, verse 41, he was crucified in a garden. Chapter 20, verse 15, he was resurrected from a garden. Chapter 20, verse 1, and the reference there to the first day of the week. Again, a subtle Genesis reference there. And we're seeing this. I've just read a, a book just now by a guy called J.H. Bavink, and, and there's a great chapter on the arrest of Jesus. And he says here, the garden is absolutely every, everywhere. The first man, Adam, disobeyed in a garden. Here you find Jesus obeying in a garden. Even more than that, you find the ironic contrast here. Sinful man in the shape of Judas and the high priest. Sinful man come looking for God in the garden. Whereas if you read the story in Genesis, you see it's God coming to look for sinful man in the garden. And the idea here is that Jesus turns everything upside down. He, he, he reverses the awful things that happened in the Garden of Eden, the, the fall of mankind, the entry of sin into the world. That was a garden that ruined everything. This is a garden that restores everything. Now, the temptation in looking at the Bible is always thinking, where, where, where am I in this passage? 
Let's, let's, let's be practical. Where am I? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Where am I in the garden? I'm Judas, to be frank. I'm carrying the clubs. That's where I am in the garden. I'm not the hero. The hero is Jesus. Control. Who is Jesus? King of kings. Lord of lords. Almost want the praise group up to do the Messiah thing. You know that King of kings, Lord of lords. The grandeur of Jesus. Driving through St. Andrews. This morning I love St. Andrews. It's dominated, of course, by the university and the dreamy towers, the spires of academia. And you walk down these beautiful cobbled streets. Where is the power? The power is being recognized in this fairly mundane, ordinary, plain building. But we're talking about the King of Kings. The BBC is an interesting institution. I was reading last week, it's not the first time I've read it, that during the the 1960s, the decade in which I was born, in which most of you study in history, there was deemed to be a kind of slide in the BBC. A young producer said to the uh, founder of the BBC, Lord Reith, who is an interesting character, both good and mad and complex, and we wouldn't go there, but this young producer said to Lord Reith, He said that people are no longer interested in religion. The church is, frankly, obsolete. Lord Reith said this. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. Why? Because our head is the God-man who was arrested in the garden who said, I am he. I am. King of kings, Lord of lords, in complete control. Control. (coughs) Number two, second C, let's look at care. Look at verse 8. They kept asking, who are you? Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. So this is a stressful situation. There's weapons, there's lights, there's soldiers, there's noise. <coughs> Again, a couple of things are, are, are going on here. When he's saying in verse 8, if you seek me, let these men go. Sure, he, he's talking at one level about the, the rest. He's, he's meaning their physical safety. And yet, he does unpack it a little bit, or or John unpacks it in verse 9. He sees significance in these words, if you seek me, let these men go, that's kind of localized to the local situation. And see how John explains it. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And so the events of of, of that night, the, the plea to the soldiers, listen, I am the guy you want. These are my people. 
let them go. Take me, <coughs> release them. In a sense, that's the whole theme of the gospel. And it shows here the care of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross was about all others, that they would be kept from a greater death. And that's the meaning of verse, verse 9. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. We live in, in days of profound anxiety. There's eco-anxiety. <clears throat> I heard recently of a, a little girl who wouldn't go to bed after watching a David Attenborough documentary. She was just terrified that the world was going to end that night, that you know, because mummy and daddy were using a little too much electricity that, that, through the lens of a little girl, that the world was going to end. There is eco anxiety. Many of you maybe have that. Maybe, maybe you, you, you engage with people, you're really worried about it, and it's a serious issue. It's not something we ought to be flippant about. There are financial concerns. But again, we're pointing someone who cares. Let them go. I've got this. I am the good shepherd. And in terms of salvation, I've got a grip of people. There is not a chaos. And so, in an anxiety-ridden world, our trust is in Jesus. I was reading a few weeks ago, in the Telegraph, I'm not giving away my politics. I'm just reading there in, in, in the Telegraph, which is it's a wee bit too left-wing for me. But I was reading in, in, in the Telegraph, and uh, this writer, Simon Heffer, he says this: is, the stock market may have crashed, but this is a great buying opportunity for the Church of England. He said, an institution, thanks to the <clears throat> I wouldn't quote the next bit because it's a little bit cheeky towards somebody. He said, in a country that is pummeled by death, disease, and uncertainty, this is an opportunity for the Church of England for faith. But the Church's reticence suggests that the Church is unprepared by those who are disorientated by change. In a society where there, there is anxiety, nobody is being turned towards the one who does care. And so we see, don't we, we see control, certainly. Verses 1 to 7, we see care in verse 8 and verse 9. Let me just talk very briefly about what I think is a third C here, control, care. And the third C is the cup the cup. And uh, there's that reference to the cup in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The story is that there's a bit of drama going on here, isn't there? Simon Peter <coughs> is kind of edgy. My theory is that Simon Peter was Scottish. He was loud and impetuous, 
and did things before he spoke. It's a thesis that's yet to be tested. There's a bit of work to be done in it, but, but that's Simon Peter's kind of, you know, characteristic. He, he just doesn't, doesn't think he's, he's impetuous. One commentator says he was brave but clueless. And uh, so it's, it's really tense in the garden. And Simon Peter takes out his sword. <clears throat> and what intrigues, intrigues me is that it struck the high priest's servant. So I, I'm not sure if this is exegetically tenable, but I've got this idea the poor high priest's servant guy's sitting there. He's just a, a, a civilian. And there's these tons of soldiers. And Simon Peter goes for one of the soldiers. He's so inept. And his aim is so hopeless that by accident he cuts off the wrong guy's ear. And so the idea there is it's all kicked off and it's looking pretty reckless. And then Jesus says to Peter, I love these words, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? <clears throat> Peter didn't get it because... He's protecting Jesus. He didn't realize that the whole thing is about Jesus protecting him. He tries to seize control, not realizing that Jesus is saying, listen, guys, I've got it. He tried to defend and advance the cause of Christ by force. How many more people have done that. How often has God said, put your sword in the sheath? The Crusades, you get your armies and you try and beat them up. Kind of Christian nationalism in its various forms, you try and beat them up. You go to some parts of Great Britain, it's Remember 1690, the day when the Protestant cause was advanced by a guy in a big white horse beating up all the bad people? That's how the church advances. We kill the baddies. And folk have the same idea today. We out-argue the baddies. We shout out the baddies. Christian nationalism, politics, force. Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. The kingdom of God is advancing, will advance by non-violent means. These are the values of the kingdom. The way up is the way down. The most powerful force is the silent power of the Spirit of God. This is what makes Christianity radically different. We're not trying to establish a caliphate by jihad, and maybe that's an unfair representation of other faiths, but not entirely. And folk would say, and I hear people saying here, <laughs> David, you, you meet some of my Christian friends you talk about extremists. You've got to meet some of the folk I grew up with. You've got to meet some of the people that I know. You talk about Christian extremists. 
You talk about folk who blow up abortion clinics. You, you talk about folk who shout people down. And you tell me about the kingdom of God not advancing by violence. I'll show you violence. And your people are the most violent of them all. And we see mea culpa, but if they are violent extremists, they are not followers of this man who was arrested in the garden. They follow another gospel. Jesus says, speaks of the cup. My mission is of a different order, and he uses this code, the cup. Now, it picks up a theme that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. For example, you read there Mark 14, 36. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So the, the cup there, the cup, what's the cup? The cup, in Old Testament terms, let me just read Psalm 75, verse 6. For in the hand of the Lord, it says, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drag it down to the dregs. Or again, we don't have time for this, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17 onwards, the same thing. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. The cup is the judgment of God on the world. Driving up here, listening to Radio 4, as you get older, you move up the radio stations. I've not yet quite reached Classic FM. And there's the morning sermon. And the lady says that, that the cross, you know, was not about atonement. It was about standing up to political injustice. It's a bit like saying that water is for floating rubber ducks in the bath. It's not really about drinking. Well, water is, of course, about floating rubber ducks in the water. But you will concede that that is a lesser purpose the main purpose of water is to sustain us and to refresh this beautiful planet. The cross was an act of political injustice. Of course, it was against the authorities of the day, yes. But at its core is Jesus Christ drinking the cup of God's wrath. Think of the agony of the cross. The agony here in verse 4 Again, Jesus knowing all that would happen. Jesus did not die as a martyr. You read stories of martyrdom, don't you? And, you know, you read there of martyrs calmly going to the flames. Was it the Cranmer who went to the flames with great calm? Bonhoeffer, it was reported, went to his execution with great calm. Jesus did not go with great calm. Jesus sweat drops of blood because he was taking the wrath of God. 
this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper. We come into the very heart of the gospel. Folks, this is the heart of the gospel. There are other issues surrounding the gospel, but this is the very heart. Three C's in a poem. Where's the poem? Here it is. An old hymn. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast so stricken of thy God, there's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed, thy bruising healeth me. This morning, the bread and the wine. All because Jesus Christ at his arrest took the cup. The dregs of the wrath of God came on him, on him, folks, not on us. Is anyone worthy? I love signs. I think signs are really important. Whenever I go to a church, I look at the signs on the wall and how they're presented and what they say. Same about hotels. Signs are really significant. I like funny signs, quirky ones. Went to this hotel in Johannesburg, South Africa. It was called the Ice Hotel. And on the door was a little do not disturb sign. And on one side it says, I'm clean enough, please don't disturb. And on the other side it says, I'm a right mess. Come on in. The Lord's Supper this morning comes to us who appreciate the John 18 story that Jesus took the cup and he took it lovingly for us. wonder if some of the elements here in John chapter 1 intrigue you. Would you like to engage more? Would you like, do some things kind of get under your skin, annoy you? Did other things say, yes, praise God. Do you have some problems with some of the concepts here? Speak to Paul. You'll solve all your problems. But look at this passage and ask that God would apply it to your heart either as a bam or as an irritant. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, again, your word, for its power for this passage and for what it tells us. Help us to seek you, find you. Forgive our sins. Amen.